listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Luke chapter number 3. So Luke has set up this book as a as a, a, a story for his friend Theophilus. And we don't exactly know who Theophilus is, but, but he's obviously a believer in Christ and, and someone who has questions about the life and ministry and, and all that went on. And so, so it appears that what Luke is doing is he's writing his gospel with Theophilus, probably a Gentile believer, and others like him, to be able to hear and understand and, and, and to be able to read these stories that for, for many had just gone around as oral traditions. And so Luke is compiling these things, and, and he's giving us a very robust story, 24 chapters. And then he'll pick up in his second volume in the book of Acts and, and finish that out through the, the events of the Holy Spirit through the, the apostles. And so it's a very robust book. You might as well just sort of get comfortable in Luke because I just think we're going to be here a while because there's just so much there to tackle. And you know what? We got time. You know, Christ hasn't returned and there's nothing wrong with Luke, so let's just plant there for a while. So we're going to be in the story of Christ as told by the physician Luke. And so in this beginning part of the story, he's setting up the background so that when Jesus steps into ministry, we can kind of understand that, that, that what Jesus started to do and to be didn't start on the day he started preaching. No, it goes all the way back to the announcement of a miracle birth. Uh, in fact, the announcement of two miracle births. One that was a miracle through the natural causes of, 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 of procreation and offspring. That, that a child that came to an old couple by a miraculous work of God. We know this individual to be John. And then that miraculous birth that has never happened in this way and never will happen in this way again where the young woman Mary, having not had a husband nor been with a man, has been found with child, the offspring of the Holy Spirit conceived within her, bringing forth the one we know as Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior. And so now John, uh, Luke opens up this story and, and through a little bit of a time jump, for Jesus was in the temple as a young, maybe 12, 13-year-old boy, and now the time jump several years to about the time of Jesus' 30th year. And he introduces this next section through the lens of the man John. And, and, and as Chad shared last week, he set the scene, he set the time frame so that Theophilus would know when these events happened to date it as close to accurate as possible. So that we can pinpoint this time and so that Theophilus would be able to corroborate with the other stories that he's heard. He's given those time stamps, those indicators of who was ruling, who was in positions of power, and what was going on when this man named John, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to proclaim to the Jews that Messiah is coming. 
the hand of God, the kingdom of God, the judgment of God is coming and he's bringing with him God's salvation. So get prepared. And his message of preparation came through one R word. You ready? It was repent. Repent. Now in the Old Testament, that idea of repent meant a total turning away from and to something in specific. And what John was saying is, is I don't care what you think about yourself. I don't, think, I don't care how religious you think you are. I don't, think, I don't care where, where you find yourself on the spiritual spectrum in your mind. In order for you to be ready for Messiah who is coming, you need to prepare your heart through repentance. You need it. I need it. We all need it. He's coming. And our hearts need to be turned toward him so that we might receive him when he shows up. Now, we know through the other Gospels that that there were those that heard John's message and scratched their heads. Those of of the religious background, those that have been seen as leaders of such in the synagogues, the spiritual, if I can, quote, unquote, wondering, repent? Well, what do we need to repent of? We've followed the law completely. We've not missed it in one part. Well, you and I both know that there's not been a single day, maybe not a single hour, maybe not a minute has gone by in your life where you could say, oh yeah, I, I really lived out that perfection that God requires for that 60 seconds. The reality of the fact is, you know you, and I know you know you because I know me. And I know there's not been a 60-second interval in my life where I could ever say that I've measured up to the perfection that God requires. And yet there were many who said, what, 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 what repentance? Messiah's coming. What, what do we need to repent of? And so John was steady communicating. I don't care who you are. He called them, you brood of vipers. Those that thought themselves pretty spiritual didn't like the idea of being called a, 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 a bunch of snakes. And yet he boldly called out everyone who would be within earshot of his message saying, Messiah's coming, repent so that you might have your sins forgiven. Those that responded to his message said, what do we do? And you heard this last week and and, and John says, here's what you do. Demonstrate that you've turned your heart toward Messiah through your actions, your actions toward Messiah others. Who, 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 John? The poor, the needy, those whom God loves, yet you have come to think of them as the despised ones. Sitting in the synagogues, they had heard messages about how that God's blessing was evident in one's life. Well, how do we know if God's blessing is evident? By the things I have, the positions I hold, the, the authority that I've been given and the materials that I have in my possession. But if you're one of the poor, if you're one of the destitute, if you're one of the ones who doesn't have, and in the society that they lived in, most didn't have under the oppressive hand of Rome, well, then that's how you know that God is not pleased with you. And John says, you want to show that your heart is turned? Then deny what you've been taught. 
say no to that that you've been living, trying to become, to show yourself blessed of God, and looking down on those who have not, seeing them as under God's judgment, and go to them and bless them out of a heart of love. If you have a tunic, if you've got two of them, then give one to them. If you have food, then share it with those who don't have the tax collector said, well, well, what do we do? John says, if, if you're collecting taxes, stop cheating because that's the norm. Stop making your wallet fat on the arm of Rome because they can't keep you from taking what you want. Stop doing that. Be fair. Collect only what's owed. Accept what you have. And if you're a soldier, what do we do? Well, quit using your authority to bully people around and get what you want because of the authority that you've been given demonstrate that your heart is turned to God by the actions of your life to those who are disenfranchised and don't have the opportunities that you have. As John is telling them this, and they respond to that message, they came down into the water of the Jordan River. A very common ceremony in this time, a a baptismal washing showing that that they publicly want to be identified with the message that John is preaching. Messiah is coming, and, and we are to meet him through the lens of repentance. We're to open our hearts. We're to turn to him and recognize that we need forgiveness and that we need to, to meet him with a right heart, with a true heart. And I want everybody to know that I'm embracing the message that this prophet of God is preaching, and so they come and are baptized by him. At the end of the day, all the baptism did was get them wet. But it certainly did say to everybody watching and to themselves, I know what my need is, and that's where I'm headed. And as John preached these things, verse 15 of chapter 3 says, As the people were in expectation. Expectation of what? Messiah coming. Messiah entering the scene and bringing the salvation of God with him. As they were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. You see, John, this one baptizing, he was a weird dude. He lived out in the wilderness. His hair grew long. His clothes were strange. He ate strange things. He was basically a bum living out in the open. And here he stands, probably didn't smell all that great. You know, probably didn't have fingernails that were, that were nice and smooth. He probably was the weirdest guy in town. And here he was standing up and the people were listening to his message and they were going, y'all, y'all don't think he could be Messiah, do you? I mean, he sure is preaching bold. He sure is saying things we've never, and he's saying things to our leaders that I can't imagine anybody doing it. Yeah, he's standing toe-to-toe with them like he doesn't care. Do you think he might be the Christ? In verse 16, John, aware of their questions, John hearing the rumblings, John maybe even answering the question of the one who raised his hand, hey, buddy, are you Messiah? John answers in verse number 16. John answers them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In these next couple of sections, we just want to get a look at Messiah who's coming. We just want to get a look at the one who was promised and the one who was on his way and the one whose who's, who's coming required repentance and a heart made right to receive him. In this first section, we want to see Jesus, the mighty one. While John's message was messianic, meaning that his message had to do with Messiah, while John's message was messianic, he was not Messiah. And he will go to great lengths to make sure that they understand. No, no, no. I'm not him. Don't mistake me for the one who is to come. What John says about Messiah is three things. What does he say? He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. John says about Messiah, he's mightier. Now, what John was talking about was not whether or not he could push up more weight than Jesus. It's it's entirely possible that John was more physically strong than his relative, possibly his cousin, because because Jesus' mother and John's mother were somehow related. So it's possible that John physically could have pressed more weight, picked up a bigger rock than Jesus. Because he's not talking about that he's more physically strong than I am. No, when he says he's mightier, he's talking about Jesus being of an infinitely higher order. An infinitely higher authority. And he goes on to say in explaining what he means is that he's so mightier than I am, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. You go, what what in the world is that? Okay, so in this time frame, the slave of the household, the the lowest of the low, and if you didn't have a a slave, then it would probably be the youngest child would be responsible for one of the dirtiest jobs in the house. That would be when when mom or dad or the older siblings or anyone of the house that that was related, the slave would come and have the, 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 the job of taking off the sandals and washing the feet of the person who was coming into the home. You say, well, that's no big deal. Right, because we, lived in, we live in paved America. We, we live in the concrete jungle of the world. But you know when you go camping and you don't have the niceties around and you go around with bare feet, you know how funky your feet can get. In fact, uh, you've probably even seen like kids who live close to the 7-Eleven or to the sit-go or the Circle K. And, and, and they're so used to going that they'll run from the house to the Circle K with no shoes on. And then when they come to play at your house, they walk into your house and they put your, their feet up on your coffee table. And it's like a, a black film. And it's just all kinds of nasty. And you, you say, hey, could you get you 
Circle K feet off my, off my, my, my coffee table. You seven, could you get your 7-Eleven feet down? You're, you're like, that's nasty. Well, that was the norm because people didn't have shoes and socks and showers. And so they relied on the, the hospitality provided. And most of the time, that hospitality was the job of the slave. And the slave's nasty job was to take the sandals off of the nasty, stinky, muddy, probably hairy ladies. No, no razors, you, you know. So nasty probably had stepped in mud mixed with manure, mixed with other things from animals, mixed with other things from the poor. Is it dirty enough yet? Is it nasty? John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Like, he's, he's so much greater that I'm not even worth being his slave. It, it would be in our vernacular like a CEO talking about someone way beneath him and saying, you know what, I'm not worthy to take his garbage out. See, John had a position of authority. You know what he was? He was a prophet of God. The first one in Israel in over 400 years he's speaking from God and they hadn't heard from God in centuries. John was a pretty big deal. And John goes, I don't even, please, just don't even talk about me when you talk about him. John says, Messiah is mightier. But he goes on and he says, and, and Messiah, Messiah baptizes better. What's he say in the text? He says, I baptize you with water. I'm down in a river. It's muddy. It's, it's dirty. You know, it's just, it's, it's just, a, it's a ro- running water. It's just where I'm at. And, and I'm baptizing you with water just to signify that, that you believe and you want to be identified with, with what I'm saying. And you recognize that what I'm saying is God's word. And, and you're just taking a step down in water from which you're going to dry. And really, in fact, from which you could step out of and forget everything you've heard and continue on with your life. All I'm doing is is a ceremony of preparation. What he's going to do is baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You say, "What, what in the world does that mean? Well, quite frankly, I don't know. But I'll tell you what I think it means. I think what he means is that Messiah is the bringer of the Holy Spirit, which most Jews through their time spent in the synagogue would remember that in two very important Old Testament passages, the first being Ezekiel chapter number 36, the second being Joel chapter number 2, they had been taught that when Messiah comes, that the Spirit would be brought to God's people. Right now, the Spirit only came and overshadowed those individuals that God would use for a specific purpose. Moses, Joshua, say the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, or say the kings, David, Solomon, Josiah. 
but the, t- the Spirit was temporary. He would come and he would empower, but if they disobeyed, he would leave them. Or when God was done with them, the Spirit would leave them. And they had been taught that when Messiah comes, the Spirit of God is coming for us all to transform us from the inside out, no longer obeying the laws on stone, but through the Spirit we would have the law of God written on our hearts so that we might walk with Him in a vital connection through the Spirit. And so what John is saying is that Messiah is coming and He's the one who's bringing the Spirit. And like my water identifies you with the message... He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does fire do? It destroys truth. But what does fire also do if you apply it to precious metals? It purifies it to where the junk comes to the top and that fire burns all that junk up and you can just take an instrument and just scrape it right off. And guess what you have afterward? Pure gold, pure silver, pure precious metal. And so what John says, I believe, is I'm I'm baptizing with water. This will get you wet. Hopefully it will turn your mind toward the message and keep you focused. But when he comes, he's going to bring the Holy Spirit. That's not going to get you wet. It's going to plunge you through identification into Him. The baptism of the Holy Spirit takes us from darkness and plunges us into light. The the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes us out of death and immerses us into life. We become identified in real fashion with Messiah through the Spirit. And what is that fire all about? Well, he said in his message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, what does the fire of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit do? Washes us clean. No longer are we covered by blood needing to come back again and again and again. No, through Messiah, the Spirit will come. And that Spirit will purge us and cleanse us and make us right before God, forgiven. He says, he's mightier than I am. He's a better baptizer than I am. But then he says also that he judges rightly. See, folks would walk away from there going, boy, John brought it on the Pharisees, didn't he? Man, they stood up and John pointed his finger at them and he told them what for, didn't he? I mean, he told us all, but he stood up to them. He said something I would have never thought to say. And they would have thought of him in that prophetic role as one who could speak with authority. And it's true. John was boldly communicating a dangerous message. We're going to find out in just a couple verses just how dangerous that message was to him. But John wants to make it clear that you understand that when Messiah comes, I can just speak the Word of God. I can just declare what God has said. The one who's coming is actually the judge of what God has said. And he'll apply that judgment across the board on your heart and mine. What does he say? 
Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What, what, what does the, the agricultural man in Israel do? He goes to his threshing floor where the, where the grain has been gathered. And they stomp it and they beat it. And, and he takes this, this winnowing tool that will help separate what is good from what is not. And the, the harvest would be the separating and deciding, no, we're going to keep this and we're going to burn that. This is... This is food and this is not. This is valuable and this is not. John says Messiah is coming and he's got the authority and the ability to determine you are with me and you are not. Now can I tell you, that is a very un-PC message. That notion that some will be received by Jesus and others will not, folks don't like to hear that. A much more popular message would be, well, you know, God would never do that. God consistently does that through Old and New Testament. And and let me tell you the basis on which I can say that. No one has ever deserved God's love. No one has ever deserved God's forgiveness. No one has ever warranted God doing anything but judging us completely because of our sin. You won't find anywhere in this text that there has ever been a human being except Messiah who did not fully and completely deserve God's absolute judgment and justice for our sin, that anyone would be saved is a miracle. And that God would allow us the opportunity <clears throat> to respond is even a greater miracle. And I just tell you, I don't know how it works. See, at the end of the day, I believe God is sovereign. I believe that everybody that's going to be saved is going to be saved. And I don't know how that works because at the very same time, I believe God gives us a choice and he doesn't save us apart from our will and we're not robots. So is God sovereign and are we all elect? Yeah. And is God is God a free will God that gives us the right to choose and to reject? Yeah. Well, how do we work that out? Well, I don't know how you work it out, but I just go, God, I'm going to leave that up to you. And in the passages that you talk about election, I'm going to talk about it. In the passages you talk about free will, I'm going to talk about it. And here's a passage where he's saying he's going to come and he's going to, he's going to separate what is good from bad. Not good guy, bad guy. That ain't how it works. Separate good from bad. Has responded to God, has rejected God, has responded through repentance and, and, and receiving what has been brought, and who has rejected what God has provided for them. Okay, fine. I'm going to gather what is mine and I'm going to separate what is not. And John says, I, I can't do that. Well, I can look at all of y'all and I can tell all of y'all to repent. And that's what God says. But what I can't do is to decide which one of you have and have not repented. But he's coming and he can. And he will. So 
get your eyes off of me. Get ready for him and get on board with him because he's the one with the authority and the ability to execute God's righteous judgment because he is the righteous judge. He'll give you what you want if you want to reject him. But he'll give you what you don't deserve if you'll embrace him. And can I tell you something? That's good news. Because we all deserve his judgment. But, but he'll give us salvation. If we'll just turn our hearts toward him. Jesus, the mighty one. But then we get to verse 18. It says, so with many other exhortations, I think what Luke is saying is John kept hollering and it didn't get any easier. Like the message he preached didn't get any easier. Like he just kept laying it out and it was hard to hear all the way through. Like you never went and went. Boy, that John message, John's message today was just really encouraging. I think you went home from the Jordan going, I just feel beat up. How do you feel, mama? I do too, honey, but let's come back in. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. One writer said, you know, just because good news is not easy to hear doesn't mean it's not good news. If it's good news, sometimes it's, it's hard to hear. Let's just listen to it because it's good, all right? And he says, but Herod the Tetrarch. Now, <clears throat> I think what Luke's doing right here is he's comparing Herod at this point to the people that, that Chad preached about last week who actually did respond. You know, they were the, the regular folks. Well, what do we do? And they're tax collectors. What do we do? And the soldiers, what do we do? And John's telling them how to respond positively. I think what we find here in these verses is Luke's giving us the other side of the coin. Those who have responded negatively to God's word. When he said, but Herod, the Tetrarch. So Herod the Great was who was Herod when Jesus was born, okay? And then he died, and he had sons and other relatives, four or more of them, that were given pieces of the authority that he had in totality. So this is not Herod the Great, but this is Herod Antipas. There's another Herod whose name was Philip, and then there was another guy who Chad pronounced last week that I'm not going to say. So anyway... So there were others that were, that were ruling. This Herod that, that Luke's talking about is Herod Antipas, the leader of Galilee. And so John had been preaching, and Herod, no doubt, had heard about John preaching and thought, hey, let's go see the crazy guy. I hear about a crazy guy down by the Jordan. Let's go see what he has to say. Well, John had a lot to say. And, and in one message, apparently, or multiples, John had something very specific to say to Herod Antipas. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John, by him, for Herodias, his brother's wife. So what, what was he being reproved of? Okay. Herod Philip, who was another son or close relative of Herod the Great, was the ruler of the territories north of Galilee. Herod Philip had a wife named Herodias. Well, apparently, Herod Philip and his brother, or very close relative, Herod Antipas, started flirting with his wife, Herodias. And 
I don't know how it all worked out. Herodias left Philip, came to Antipas. Well, that wasn't right. And everybody knew what had happened. And I think John just, I I see you're here, and I see you're listening to the message, and they're wondering what they need to do. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to get right, Antipas, Herod, the leader, the one who has earthly authority and and got troops and really can do whatever you want to do under God's authority. You need to get your heart right. And the first thing you need to do is break off this marriage between you and Herodias because that's adultery and that's wrong. And so basically it was like standing with a megaphone in front of, you know, the White House or the Capitol or wherever and just declaring the sins of your leaders. And by the way, you're doing this wrong, and this ain't right, and that's sin. You need it corrected. Well, Herod didn't like it. So what did he do? Oh, and, and for all the other evil things that Herod had done, John had uh, illustrations. And I try not to do that to y'all. You know, when, 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 I try not to make you illustrations because that's bad form for pastors to do that, you know? You know, you shouldn't lie like Chad does. No, I, I, I wouldn't do that. You don't lie. You're, you tell the truth. But that, that, would be, that would be really bad form. Apparently, John didn't mind that. So he would just call out folks. Well, Herod didn't like that. And so what did he do? He locked up John in prison. And we know what ultimately happened to John in prison is he lost his head. So it was a dangerous message that he's preaching. And I think what he's doing, Luke is saying, some of the folks had hearts toward repentance. Some of the folks had hearts toward rejection. Bottom line, Messiah's coming. You got two choices. There's not a third. So then we jump to verse number 21, where we've seen Jesus, the mighty one. Now let's see Jesus, the approved son. We'll see this quickly. Now, when all the people were baptized, and maybe it is that Luke is giving a summary of when everyone that was coming to hear the pre-message of Messiah's coming had had an opportunity to come. And when Jesus also had been baptized... And you ask this question, well, wait a minute. John's message was one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why would Jesus need to come to be baptized? Because I didn't think he needed to repent of anything. And you would be right on track because he did not need to repent of anything. He had no need of the forgiveness of sins. Well, well, then why did Jesus come to be baptized? Well, here's what I think. I think that Jesus came in order to be aligned with the will and word of God. I think when Jesus stepped down into that water, what he was saying was, what John is preaching is correct. And maybe there were some in the audience that would look at him and go, oh, he must also need to repent. They would have been wrong But at the very least, what Jesus was doing was not standing on the shore going, yeah, I don't don't need that. Rather, he was coming down in the water to signify the ministry that he was about to continue on himself was completely in line with the message that John had preached about forgiveness. Was completely in line with what John had said about Jesus, Messiah, who was mightier, who baptized better, and who was the righteous judge. 
And I think when Jesus stepped down in that water, not only was he identifying or aligning himself with the will and word of God, I think he was identifying himself with you and me. And everyone else who went down in that water knowing I'm broken and I need forgiveness and Messiah is bringing forgiveness. I think when Jesus stepped in that water, he did so on behalf of you and me. Yep, what John's saying is true. It is the message that God has given to prepare you for me. And that forgiveness that is coming is going to be for me. So I think he was aligning himself with all those who would need what he had come to bring. When Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, it's interesting that Luke identified that he was praying, doing what? Submitting himself to his heavenly father. The Bible says that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You know what we see in this in this minute right here, and you would see it also in Matthew and also in Mark. You, you, you see something that, that many detractors have said. The Bible never says anything about Trinity. Trinity's not in the Bible anywhere. And you know what we'll concede? You're right, that word's not in the Bible. But Luke 3, 21 and 22 show us God the Son in the water. God the Father speaking from heaven and God the Holy Spirit lighting in one place. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So I don't need it to say Trinity anywhere. He's right there. We see this and we hear this heavenly approval, this heavenly endorsement. What does the Father say? He says, you are my son. Now that seems very simple to you and me, but, but I want to read you something if I can. I, I want to jump on it's, it's not on the screen. It's not in your notes. Psalm chapter number two, very important messianic psalm. The psalm says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, God, at the silliness of these rulers. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, here's what God will say. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that Psalm about David? Touche. 
But you know who the Jews saw that psalm about? Not David. Messiah. David was, yes, an anointed son of God, an awesome vessel of God, the the king that that was their all-time favorite, the goat, if you will, the greatest of all time. But they knew that David was not their savior. You know why? Because David was a murderer and an adulterer, and you know he was he he was just as bad as he was good. David can't save. So they knew that underneath the promise made to David was a bigger promise made to the king who was to come. So what is told here? God says, that's my son. You're my king. And we know that God the Son has always existed. God didn't become a father the day that Jesus was born. But he did operate in a way different than at any other time in in eternity. As the father to God the Son, committed and emptied of all his glory, emptied of all his privilege and all that was his through eternity, so that he might put on flesh like you and me and become like us so that he might be for us that that would forgive sins, that that would make right between us and our creator. And God says, you're my son. The anticipated one He says, you're my beloved son, uniquely loved, uniquely prepared, uniquely chosen to do what only he can do. John couldn't do it. Peter couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. You can't do for yourself. You're the one. And you're the one in which I am well pleased. Well pleased, why? Because Jesus, as the second Adam, would fulfill what the first Adam could not. And he would fix what the first Adam ruined for all of us. That's my son. That's the king. He's chosen. He's been appointed for this thing. And I am well pleased with him because he will fulfill it ladies and gentlemen just get a good look at Jesus the mighty one Jesus the approved son you say well what do we do well I want to encourage you I want you to see the Jesus that is mightier than all your brokenness. If you never trusted him as Savior, you know you're broken, and you know you're broken beyond repair. He's the one who can renew you with new life. But as I look around the auditorium, I think most of the folks here I know have have expressed to me 
that you are followers of Jesus. Well, guess what? He's mightier than any of the brokenness you're feeling now. You know He can save you from your sin because you've trusted Him. But He's mighty enough to come along and pick up the pieces. Some that have been broken by others in your life, but many that you've broken by your own choices. That one that's coming is not looking to take a, 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 an instrument of threshing to hurt you. He's come to separate. Separate the rejectors from the acceptors. And to separate the junk from what is righteous in your life. If you let him. He's the mighty one. He can address your brokenness. Turn your heart toward Him and be made new. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to announce Jesus boldly, knowing that some will accept while others don't. And that's a dangerous job. But we announce Him correctly and we announce Him boldly. Announcing this Jesus to the world will cost you. What will it cost me? Everything. But that's okay. You can give up everything. You know why? Because what you get from him is of far greater worth than anything you could have in this life. What would it profit to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Not a thing. And what would a man exchange in return for his soul? He'd exchange everything. Well, why don't you just lay aside yourself? Embrace Jesus and receive what is His on your behalf, on His behalf for you. But then live that out. Might cost you your head, but you'll get it back. And that's okay. See Jesus. Turn your heart toward Him. Walk with Him hand in hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. May we worship him. Seeing him as he is. Messiah. Mighty. The giver of life. The righteous judge. The king. The savior. 